Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Welcome back to all new, all different, Uncanny X's for Podcasts, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-title 80s expansion. I'm your host, Jonah. I'm Dylan. And I'm Nico, and we hope you survive the experience, because one of these romances will not survive! That is right, we are taking a look at the weirdly ceremonial, kind of like, epic, a little bit Paul Smith, straight up copying Frank Miller to varying degrees of success, wonderful, Uncanny X-Men 172 through 175, with a The New Mutants 5-6 Chaser. These stories represent sort of like the apex of everything Claremont had been working toward, building with Madeline Pryor and Scott, getting things set up with the Wolverine miniseries. It would be ridiculous to try and talk about any of this without mentioning that this will be Bob McCloud's final issue as regular penciler. The guy didn't quite make it through six issues, unfortunately. Really talented artist, but he departed. Sal Buscema is going to be taking over for the remainder of the series, having started with five and six. And funny enough, Paul Smith isn't going to see through the end of what we're reading today. While Paul Smith will be the penciler on 172 to 175, the last eight pages are by one day legendary X Men artist. John Romita Jr. So, Jonah, I'm going to blow your mind. The last eight pages of Uncanny that we read are the same artist as Here Comes Tomorrow from New X-Men. What? I know, right? It's, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's fucking wild. It's a really crazy realization. John Romita Jr. Oh my god! Oh my god, okay, it just all just clicked for me. Oh my god. <laughs> John Romita Jr. is an artist who's going to come back to the X-Men a million times. His style transforms dramatically. Funny enough, Wills Potashio, another super incredible artist, his style transforms dramatically as well, but his style transforms dramatically for a very sad but kind of Gloria Estefan coming out of the dark bus accident, boat accident sort of situation. He lost control of his right hand. I think there was an accident of some sort that like crushed his hand or he I forget exactly how it happened, but his right hand became disabled. So he just learned to draw equally, if not more brilliantly, with his left hand. Oh, okay. What the fuck? But so incredible. Can't even... Yeah, right? Can't praise it enough. And it would be... uh, Okay, you know, before we can talk about anything else, guys. Dylan, I'm sure this was not your first time reading New Mutants 5 and 6. It was not. Jonah, I'm sure it was your first time reading New Mutants 5 and 6. I feel like it would be funny if I said no, but yes, it has been my first time. (laughs) So, I am happy to provide a little insight on what can only be described as one of the strangest moments in all of Marvel 1980s nonsense. Team America (laughs) really fucking existed. They first appeared in Captain America back in 1982 in issue 269. 
And later, we're renamed the Thunder Riders. Because, uh, you know, that's what you do. Their title ran 12 issues, to be honest. That's really... That's a year. That's that's a whole amount of time you made someone read that. So <laughs> I think it's, you know, I, it's the dumbest thing. It's really bad. But they tried, and God bless Chris Claremont, who, like, you know, it's weird because there's times where Claremont seemed almost insecure over his properties. The way he didn't always play very nice with other big-name writers didn't feel right to us. But here, I actually think he does a really nice thing. One of the things I've mentioned is my father gave me access to an enormous number of comics. I, in fact, after they appeared here, did look at all 12 issues of Team America. I will not lie or insult myself and say that I read it, because what I more did was poked it with my fingers and just kind of like, oh, this is real. So (laughs) that happened. But I would not describe my relationship with that title as having read it. Jonah, in the first episode of this damn show, we made a joke about the fact that I promised you X-Men, and you got a magical demon Karn, and here we are, episode 102, and I promised you mutants, and here we are, magical psychic motorcycle telepaths. Yeah, you know, on the list of mutations, I wouldn't ever think of a group of stunt motorcycle dirt bikers psychically connecting to form the Black Rider like it's their own Captain Planet. I would never expect that. Sometimes with more obscure characters, Chris Claremont likes to go, GIMME! And he likes to try to give them a purpose and, like, do things with them and make them kind of try to be cool. Or if he sees another character and he's like, I have a story for that character. He kind of likes taking them. I don't know if he really needed to have them. (laughs) I'm not saying they're bad. I don't think he written them wrong. But I don't know if they needed to be mutants as well. I don't know if they needed to have their own Captain Planet. (laughs) Well, writer of The Defenders, J.M. Dematius, actually spoke about the characters as they were introduced during his time on Captain America. And he said they were something that was outright forced onto the writers as an effort to create a toy line. They were another toy deal based on an idea with Ideal Toys. They were an attempt by Ideal to replace the toys that they had been producing for Evil Knievel because at one point Evil Knievel had some legal trouble and they just sort of wanted to get some space. So they used essentially the same idea and just made it magic. So yeah, Team America, the Thunder Riders. Dylan, the Thunder Riders, one of those got, I don't even, I mean, I know you are the king of C-list characters, but this is your, like, this is your crawl space. I don't think this you can see these on any list. Uh, this is below yeah, you. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I know of Team America because of reading New Mutants before, but I didn't know any of that information that you just gave us, and I think I would have been better not to know it. I don't disagree. <laughs> Uh, why was the 80s full of trying to get more money not in the comic realm of things like with this and everything that makes dazzler no but like i get it i do get it because we all get crazy shit pants about canon 
but the canon only exists to produce the toys. It was about getting guys like us, and now it's about getting kids of all ages to want to play with these things. And for years, comics were enough, but animations become so readily available and so cheap, and I think the 80s commercials. I mean, like, animated series. It's just... Oh, God. I can't believe that we just talked about Team America for that long. Who would have thunk it? I, I feel like that's an accomplishment. I feel like we should get an award as, like, the first podcast ever, and the only podcast that exists out there, that talked about Team America. Jonah, I feel like the only award that we would get would be, like, a Razzie, so... Well, let me... <laughs> I, I think that actually inspired me. Jonah, you're right. There should be awards. I think officially, we're gonna have to look at having the first ever muties and we'll give out multiple mans oh my god i love this i don't even know what it is but i love it I mean, if, if we all, everyone gets their own personal Jamie, I feel like everybody wins. Absolutely. Oh my god, and they'll be called the Dazzling, they'll be called the Dazzling Muties. And we'll have the first ever Dazzling Mutie Awards. <laughs> In reading two series that are running concurrently are intertwined, The New Mutants and Uncanny X-Men. Something that stuck out to me was when the X-Men were trying to find Angel when he was down with the Morlocks, Storm asked Charles Xavier if he can borrow Rain for her tracking ability, to which he said, no, they're not X-Men. And I always was like, well then what is the point of all of this? You're training them to be able to hone their powers but they're not gonna be X-Men? It was a really weird statement and throwaway line possibly that was there. Here, it feels like Chris Claremont is just writing teen X-Men with the hijinks that the New Mutants get into. This story can be applied to the X-Men. The X-Men could have gone through this and they could have been introduced to Team America and they could have been fighting the Silver Samurai and Viper. I just find it very weird that in one book, there saying that they're not supposed to be the X-Men, but here they're placed in an, a very X-Men-like situation. Chris, what is your bigger plan for all of this? Like, I, maybe I don't get Charles, but I think I would need to understand Chris's because this is, this is oh, these are his two books. I need to know where you're going. It's sort of the problem Buffy versus Angel falls into. On Buffy, anybody staking a vampire is a huge deal, but on Angel, people are just slaying demons left and right like it's no big deal, and there's this sort of disconnect on the equilibrium of severity, and I found that really exemplified when Xavier was like, no, I can't use my telepathy the same way. People too far. <laughs> Later on in the Uncannies. Seriously, sometimes his telepathy is just straight up MCI after 8pm, and sometimes his telepathy is so spotty. I get what Jonah was saying, because this book, it kind of just seems like, what are those wacky kids gonna get into now? type of thing and if Charles was so adamant about the kids I guess being always away from danger and always safe I feel like Charles would have I don't know given some sort of order to Stevie then that if she's out in public and something like this happens that she immediately needs to somehow contact the X-Men now there's been a few issues now of new, new mutants where the kids are out with Stevie and then they end up saving the day type of thing I wouldn't expect Charles would let the kids leave even with Stevie. And that's what 
I'm saying. I need more consistency of what Charles is telling the X-Men and then what Charles is letting the kids do. Because had this story taken place before the Morlock issues, then that would make even less sense. I mean, it still doesn't make sense now, but it would make even less sense that Charles said no when they did a, what I would consider a far more dangerous mission having no X-Men as opposed to having four X-Men trying to save an old X-Men. It was just, however, I will say I do appreciate the emerging heroism in some of the characters. I think Birdo is becoming, and this isn't me trying to make a pun or joke about it, hot-headed. His fights with El Lobo, I don't think were necessary in the slightest. Birdo seems very venomous and spiteful. Like, if it doesn't go his exact way he envisioned it in his perfect world, it's automatically the worst and he now hates it. But I do appreciate Sam, you know, wanting to go into the call for action and being a hero. I appreciate that. In these two issues, we were introduced to two new villains. I think it's weird because, although I don't know much of what the story is and how he's going to influence, I know he's a very important villain for the X-Men, and very specifically Wolverine. I just don't think his first appearance in the X-Verse should have been in New Mutants. I don't know at the time how many people were reading both, or how many were just reading X-Men. I think that information, that character who's playing such a vital role, shouldn't be introduced in the secondary book. That being said, Dylan, what are your opinions on the Silver Samurai and Viper? Viper is a character I am not familiar with in the slightest. Viper kind of goes back and forth of being C-list or a golden star for like one or two issues and then disappears for decades at length. Yeah, every now and then there's like a good Viper story and then she goes right back to being, you know, Viper. <laughs> My thoughts on Silver Samurai, with, like you were saying, the two books being written and distributed at the same time, it seemed kind of out of place. I don't know. I kind of feel like maybe Silver Samurai should have been introduced in the short Wolverine miniseries, maybe something like Lurking in the Shadows or, or something. Kind of seemed like he immediately came out of nowhere and didn't really fit too much into any part of the New Mutants story. It just seemed like this issue was, here's Team America. America, here's New Mutants, here's Silver Samurai, and we're gonna somehow tie them all three in together, and it's gonna try to make sense, but not really. Something that I've noticed, and I know New Mutants aren't very far into their stories, but every villain has already been an ex-villain, whether it's Donald from the Hellfire Club, Sentinels, the Brood, now the Silver Samurai who's been around for longer. I want the New Mutants to have their own villains. Not that the larger X-Verse isn't important and they can't be some crossover who fights who, but, you know, give them more unique challenges of villains that the X-Men haven't faced yet, because that would be much more interesting to see how these kids have to deter how to fight a villain that they don't have information on. And, I mean, the X-Men are about to give the New Mutants a little bit more room to breathe in the next couple of arcs. It's really important, because you're not wrong. One of the things that I think the New Mutants quickly fell into a pattern of was being X-Men light or X-Babies, and the whole goal was to not be that, to give the book its own identity. And I think in trying to give the book its own identity, they went and did something bold. They mysteriously killed off one of the minority characters in an early adventure, and a page toward the end. It was a little confusing, <laughs> like you kind of added a question in your tone. It was hard to tell what really happened with Karma at the 
end of that issue. But then reading Uncanny, they kind of answered that question. Yeah, I remember trying to piece this together the first time I read it when I was a kid. You know, I'd kind of like read a bunch in a row and then would kind of put it together a bit. It wasn't until I read the next issue of New Mutants that does in fact clarify that, yeah, Shan's gone. They cannot find her. And it just feels so abrupt. If for no other reason, and I hate to put it this way, she never really felt like she fit the title. We made so many comments about how she was treated horribly. And at the end of the day, the actual plot of these issues doesn't really feel like it accomplishes much. The Silver Samurai and Viper are there, and it feels a little bit more like fan service to the Wolverine Mini than it does like an actual arc of the New Mutants. From there, the Team America material feels forced in. In fact, other than the ultimate conclusion that Karma has been lost to the New Mutants after hearing a strange voice in her head, it really feels like these two issues accomplished, well, nothing. Which is what we felt Who's Scaring Stevie accomplished. Which is what we felt the first few issues accomplished. I feel as much as I've enjoyed the New Mutants, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, I think I could have done without the Team America story, and only because the two teams split to do two different missions, it felt like there was no real purpose of Team America doing what they were doing then. I understand why, because Charles was like, well, this is a safety in case they don't succeed. But if they didn't succeed, it wouldn't have mattered what Team America does. So I don't understand why there was a continuation with that plot. Yes, there were some, they were mutants and Charles made them feel like they had some duty to help out now. It was just, I don't want to say bizarre. I guess just maybe unfocused. The buildup of Wolverine's relationship with Mariko stretches all the way back to the first Cockramera, back to our first episode, and here, suddenly and abruptly stopped because she doesn't like how he treats her cousin. I know it's a matter of honor, but we just dealt with beating corruption and, you know, her cousin's kind of like a known supervillain. It was a bit quick, especially, I mean, I kind of feel like Logan and Mariko quickly wanting to get married was really quick too, but it just kind of seemed like that was super quick to say, hey, we were just going to have these two get married and that was going to be kind of a life-altering thing for Logan and then, oh, wait, no. Listen, I've seen my fair share of couples moving forward fast. There were certain things I think I needed more detail on. In the last issue, we left on Storm contemplating whether or not she was going to be an X-Men, whether she was going to be Aurora or Storm, because she realized those two women were no longer going to have to be the same, because her duties as Storm were starting to heavily conflict with who she is as Aurora. But a lot of that just seemed completely glossed over, and she's just completely fine with Rogue being on the team, which I'm not saying that can't be the story, but after such a very personal ending of who does Storm want to be, I feel like that needed a resolution that was on panel. Like Jonah said, it is a little confusing at first in these issues that we read, because it seemed like at the end of the last issue that we read, she was really, really torn. Yes, these issues that we read for this episode, especially 173, when Storm has her kind of, I guess, life-altering wardrobe change and it makes Kitty cry, is a very important moment for Storm because I kind of feel like Aurora was taking more control of being the X-Man instead of just being Storm, if that makes sense. I'm so glad you brought up her relationship with Kitty because she has spent so long taking care of Kitty as some sort of penance 
for losing Gene that if we try to trace the narrative of Storm for a moment, Storm was a goddess who, to whatever extent felt her place was above others, came to realize that is not an acceptable way to live, but understood her value as somebody with some not-human attributes. She rises to the top of the X-Men and loses her best friend. She then spends the next several years searching for penance by acting a surrogate mother to this young girl. And she's finally giving herself a chance to be her own woman. She's never had that. She went from uncontrollable goddess to mother figure seemingly overnight. And this is a moment to explore the humanity and the womanhood of Storm instead of just the goddess and the super creature. Something that I really appreciate about Storm's journey in the first two issues that we've read is her getting to know Yukio. And Storm often remarks, and it is often written, that Storm loves to be physically free. She loves having open space, open air. She loves as much nature as possible. She loves having the ability to move as she pleases. However, a lot of Storm's mentality was very rigid, very she has to do things a specific way or things get out of control. And I think through these two issues, Storm learned how to have freedom of her mind, to be able to let things go and to just, whatever the situation needs, do that. And speaking of letting it go and just do that, pretty sure Kitty was trying to get some Metal D in Storm's room (laughs) shortly after they had a fight. And I don't know what sort of weird I'm going to teach my mom a lesson shit that is. But she's like, I know. I'm going to bang my boyfriend, who's like vaguely my mom's good friend, in her house. What? No, girl, no. Bang him on one of his canvases. Have him draw you like one of his Russian snowflakes or tractors or... No, don't say snowflakes. Oh, I'm sure he knows seven words in English at that point and just calls everybody a fucking snowflake. <laughs> Vidanya, Vidanya! So, no. I... Bush boy! Bush boy! <laughs> B- boys more. More boys. More boys! So, I don't know, guys. I think Kitty being like, Colossus, I'm ready. And then Storm being like, Hergaz! Was kind of like really unexpected anybody else anybody else kind of surprised when storm was like i want to watch you guys bang on my futon was anybody else like not ready for I, that, that? that's not what she said she was like what are you two doing in here and kitty's like oh storm what are you doing here and she's like this is my room what do you expect and kitty's like oh, i changed the subject real fast what happened to all the plants because you know that wasn't the first thing she fucking noticed when she walked in oh i agree i've always been annoyed by that also i really enjoy that you give Storm's perspective and I give Kitty's perspective and Dylan sits there saying nothing. So you So know. I'm giving Colossus. Yeah, I was just going to say, so I'm giving Colossus' perspective. Perfect. Um, I love that we all got to the joke at the exact same time, too. So I often say that I personally view Kitty as the protagonist of the X-Men currently. She literally gets everything and anything, and I'm here for it, and I love it. But Kitty is often the star, or she finds a way in the spotlight. These issues, Kitty, Colossus, and Nightcrawler took a heavy backseat. I don't know if that was really fair 
fair to those characters. Well, I mean, we needed all of that focus on Madeline and Jason, because when I think how I want to celebrate the X-Men 175th issue, it's with a whole lot of focus on Jason Wingard. You know, the villain, we weren't expecting him. (laughs) You were probably really surprised when it was Jason and not Gene. Yeah, okay, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. I actually wasn't surprised, and you the only reason why is two things. One, I remember Jason Wingard's disguise as the priest on the plane. That I was like, alright, no, that's Jason Wingard. I know it is. There, there's something wrong here. But he's also in a different panel, smoking his cigarette when Madeline is gushing over being married to Scott. If that wasn't there, I would have been much more surprised because I wouldn't I wouldn't have been like, oh, this is Jason Wingard. I knew the entire time. So part of that kind of ruined it for me. So Claremont pointing to how clever he is absolutely made him less clever. <laughs> Correct. It's still a very cool twist. Oh, I agree. I'm actually going to be on a different page than I believe you two. I am actually kind of really glad that Jason was kind of the point in this at around the 175th issue of the X-Men because Mastermind, I feel like, is a pretty amazing villain. I know he's kind of a C-list, so that might be why I like him, but I feel like he was always... Not always, but kind of downplayed when it came to the original Brotherhood. I know he was pretty powerful then, but I feel like Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver kind of became the stars of that team, along with their father. This is kind of one of his biggest returns, if I'm not mistaken, into the Xbooks, and a really good way of showing how powerful he actually can be. With his illusions, using them against the X-Men and against Madeline, I am actually very happy that Mastermind's the villain in this arc. And it fits our cyclical pattern that Claremont loves to bring up the same villains roughly every 50 issues. That's really his thing. And 125-ish? Yeah, that's that's kind of close enough to the Dark Phoenix Saga for my sake to hit the number. It's an unusual ride because ultimately, as much as Mastermind is the villain, the villain is what they perceive Gene to be capable of. Don't get me wrong. The guy pulling the strings is Mastermind. But they're more afraid of what Gene is up to than they are of Mastermind because at this point, they're not even aware Mastermind's part of it. In fact, other than Scott, nobody really understands Mastermind's part in this until well after it's too late. Yes, I completely agree, and I think it says a lot more about the state of the X-Men and where their fears really lie. They were so afraid of Jean coming back and being evil that they were ready to kill her again. And I find it so interesting that that's the state of my of the X-Men that any instance of Gene leads to this immediate regressive way of thinking, or as they say, kill her, mourn her after. It was very fascinating to see that that's what the X-Men, they, they're still holding on to that fear 40 issues later. I love it. Did anybody else find it weird that no one questioned Mariko when she didn't want to marry Logan? Like, no one thought it was weird? <laughs> No, no one, no one wanted to like you know psychically scan her to make sure she was fine. Nobody thought that like nobody wanted. I think to do anything. they all probably no. I think they all thought she came to her senses. <laughs> like I mean you know? that realistically. I'm not being mean. Like they all said, you know what? This thing was doomed from the start. We can't even believe they made it this far. At least they had this couple of months. <laughs> 
it's a tortured character trait. They can never truly be happy, and I'm sure that's one of those things they all say about him. Oh, Logan will never truly be happy. There'll always be some roadblock in the way of his happiness. Speaking of people who there will always be a roadblock in the way of their happiness, when Logan ultimately had to attend Scott's <laughs> wedding, I mean, ugh, LOL. Okay, yeah, Burn, buddy. People who burn. Yeah, I was going to say that. We, we talked about how Logan and Mariko kind of went fast and got married. And then, whoa, out of nowhere, Madeline just tried to kill us as Phoenix. And now, two pages later, I do. Well, and Logan got to bring Carol to the wedding. So... Oh. Okay, can I, am I the only one who... I would love a duo series of them. Is, oh, is no, that it happens a, a lot. They I team would up love a bunch. to read that. Logan also teams up a bunch with Jessica Drew. He's really well utilized in supporting strong characters who exist in male-coded scenarios, and we get a lot of really terrific Logan stories in that arena. So if you're somebody who appreciates Logan and Carol, there is a wealth of material for you out there. I just love that they know each other because they serve together, so they have that in common, and that's something they can talk about, and it's just... A friendship that I would really love to see explored more, and I, I just feel not conned. I'm just like slightly sad because Binary and Rogue never being able to be on the same team, we're not going to get a lot of that in the uncanny of Wolverine and Carol. Speaking of Logan and his different times where he's been placed with women, and especially ones that kind of read as masculine, I did just want to throw out that these issues that we read were also kind of the beginnings of Logan and Rogue's relationship and Rogue being another one of the younger ex-girls that look up to Wolverine, especially in issue 173, they were partnered up and going after Silver Samurai. I just wanted to point that out since Logan is always known to being the papa bear to a bunch of different teen ex-girls. This was the, the beginning of him and Rogue's time. Yeah, he's very teach me senpai. Or is that it? Do I have it right? I would be so upset if I got this wrong. That's what it is. Until we return for everybody to give me some pie. Dylan, where can everybody find you on the internet? Everybody can find me on Facebook at my X-Men Facebook group that is called House of X. And you can find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Jonah, where can everybody find you? Sending a plush version of myself to Nico and Kevo because I couldn't be there in person. Even though I love the, I know they love the real version. Oh my god, no, the little Amanda doll. Oh my god, little day tripper. <laughs> For a little bamf, little day trippy. Oh, oh, my heart can't. It's like Baby Yoda, but, you know, not. <laughs> Dead silence. Okay, so, Jonah, where can everybody know. find you again? Oh, re- really fast. I was, I was just thinking of a crossover of Baby Yoda and um, a bamf. Which, I mean, Kitty was reading Star Wars this issue. Come full circle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. At the time, Marvel had the Star Wars license, so it made sense. It's just so funny. Full circle. Full circle. Nico, where can we find you? You guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like HTML with Kevo, Jonah's boyfriend, my husband, where we talk about all sorts of media matters. Don't forget to check out the other feeds of this show, like We Are Krakoa, where we talk about Jonathan Hickman's Dawn of X. You can check me out on Instagram at Nico Action, or you can check out my super fun superhero comic over at KidRiotComics.com. And until next time, we'll see you guys. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs>